What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Stand Up, Speak Up, the podcast that raises awareness and encourages support to those feeling hurt, lost, or forgotten. I grew up in this sort of myriad of runaway shelters and group homes and foster homes and slept in a lot of abandoned buildings as a ward of the state. And the woman who first took me in when, according to her, I was under a year old, was an African-American woman who had several foster kids that she had taken in and she was being paid for. And she, according to her, found me on a park bench. I was less than a year old. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast featuring those who have sometimes been left behind in the margins, highlighting important social issues, and giving a voice to those who don't often get heard. I'm your guest host, Peter Anthony Holder. The foster care system. It's often been referred to as a vicious cycle of abuse and neglect. It's known to be difficult to leave the world of poverty, teen pregnancy, sex abuse, and crime behind. Those who manage to escape its harsh grip rarely look back. But one man who grew up on the tough and rough streets of New York is doing everything he can to confront his past and make a better future for those who unfortunately follow in his foster care footsteps. Dr. David Bernstein has held appointments at Yale University School of Medicine, where he completed his doctoral internship, and Harvard University Medical School, where he completed his postdoctoral residency in forensic psychology in the Department of Law and Psychiatry. He consults with federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. He's also a former street kid. Dr. Bernstein was raised as a ward of the state in New York City. When you add together his rough-and-tumble childhood and his educational background, you get a professional who knows how to walk the walk and talk the talk. He's an expert in threat assessment and violence, able to tap into the instincts he honed as a child growing up homeless. Carla Stevens Tolstoy talked with David to find out what can be done in the foster care system and also to find out how, as a child, he survived it. Your childhood, which is unique considering what you ended up doing for a living and how far you got in your education and in your success, based on your upbringing, people wouldn't have thought you would have ever gotten into an Ivy League or into a difficult program like you graduated in. I grew up in this sort of myriad of runaway shelters and group homes and foster homes and slept in a lot of abandoned buildings as a ward of the state. Grew up in New York City. And the woman who uh, first took me in when, according to her, I was under a year old, was an African-American woman who had several foster kids that she had taken in and she was being paid for. And she, according to her, found me on a park bench. I was less than a year old. I remember her saying that I was a very quiet baby. I would, even as I got older, I would walk around going with my finger to my mouth going, shh all the time. And that when she found me, I had marks on my face where apparently there were 
some scars, some, like where I was uh, apparently beaten or what have you. And uh, even to this day, I have these very light, almost hard to notice, uh, unless you really look hard, uh, kind of uh, scars that are still there, assumably from that time. But I remember some of my earliest memories with her. But she was a very, very, very abusive woman. So you mean the woman that raised you? So the woman that found you on the park bench? Yeah. I mean, did she not have to go through the courts to foster you or to bring you into her home? Like, how did all of that work? I mean, just because you find a kid doesn't mean it's yours. Yeah. So the way she sort of told the story was, you know, she went to take me to like the 73rd or 72nd precinct, which is in the area. And that when she, they, it was like on a Friday, you have to remember, this is sort of in the, in the 60s, right? So when she went to take me, she said they told her to come back on Monday or what have you. And she said over the weekend, she really decided she wanted to keep me. So she did, you know, and I was kept for you know, I guess she registered me or whatever. And uh, she was already a foster parent. So I ended up, you know, staying with her. And I lived with her till I was about six, which is the first time I ran away. She was an incredibly, extremely abusive person. Some of the things she did. Kids shouldn't have to be superheroes to get through the foster care system. And I agree. You should not have to be a superhero to be successful at the other end of the system. Yeah. But um, you but have I'm... you have been a superhero. Like everything you've done has put you in superhero status. So maybe the reason you could become superhero is maybe because you never felt sorry for yourself. And I was defiant over what everybody said. It was important for me to say no one's going to define me by whatever they think or express that's not going to be what's going to stop me did you grow up in a lower income neighborhood so Um, would it have been better for you than if you had grown up in let's say a medium to higher income i mean were most of the kids parents not the best parents maybe all the time see now that's an interesting question right because you would assume yeah yeah if you grow up in one of the worst ghettos in New York City, Bedford-Stuyvesant, you're talking now in the uh, 70s, right, which is rough, rough place, right, that you probably fit in better if you don't have a whole lot of stuff because a lot of the kids didn't have a lot of stuff, right? Well, here's the interesting thing about that. A lot of the kids, even though they might have been on public assistance and even though everybody got free lunches, I didn't even know kids paid for lunch, right? Everybody got the free lunch and all that, the vast majority still had parents and moms who were invested or grandmoms who were invested in their kids going to school the, the day after Easter Sunday, looking or whatever the you know next day of school was, looking sharp in their nice Easter clothes. When you didn't have that and you were still, you know, given whatever the less expensive thing you could, they could give you was, even within that framework, you stood out. I mean, when you're poor among the poor, that's a pretty bad situation. And how, what percentage 
um, were there of other white kids? Literally zero. And do you believe um, that that the government? I literally didn't know. I literally did not know any other Caucasians except teachers and that type of you know official type people like you know, in terms of neighbors or what have you. I grew up on Fulton Street, you know, Franklin Avenue in the heart of, again, one of the harshest, uh, you know, ghettos, harshest neighborhoods in New York City. And I grew up very, very bicultural. Actually, <laughs> you know, you, you grow up and you are part of your neighborhood. So... I jokingly say I didn't know I was Caucasian, truthfully. And so, you know, I was just another kid in the neighborhood. It, it was definitely kids would make uh, a, a distinction. There was a lot of fights over this and that and the other and a lot of, uh, do, do you know, you... white boy this and cracker that kind of stuff. And when that's not who you are feeling like, that can be very uh, confusing. Every time I ran away um, from every place I went, I ended up at these runaway shelters, predominantly sleeping on floors because they were always overcrowded or going to sleeping in abandoned buildings off of uh, St. John's Place in Brooklyn and, you know, uh, sleeping in abandoned buildings where other kids are there and, you know, you're kind of hanging out with each other and you kind of learn to watch each other's back a little bit and you didn't have a whole lot. I can tell you in those situations, it didn't matter what color you were. Everybody was trying to find food. Everybody was trying to find a place to sleep that was dry and not wet, or at least a bandit building that still had running water. But even that sometimes you'd be so cold that the toilet bowls would freeze up to a solid block of ice. And in those situations, it didn't matter what color you were. You were just, you know, you were there. You wanted the kids. Now, yeah, every now and then you'd get some older kid who would say something stupid. But almost always when you're at the foster homes themselves or the group homes, you know, when I was at, um, uh, not Geller House, uh, but Regal Park Boys Home in uh, Regal Park, Queens, I remember, you know, there was one or two kind of knuckleheads who would say something that wasn't so nice. But, you know, you, you had bigger things to deal with. You know, when you grow up in this world and you take on a, a certain, you know, I, I spoke like every other kid in the neighborhood spoke. I mean, I didn't say ask. I would say ax because every kid said ax. And periodically some teacher would come along and try to correct you. And they would say ask. They would try to say slowly so you'd hear it and i'd say axe <laughs> because you don't hear it you know you don't believe that post living in the ghetto and going on to post-secondary school and going on to yale and getting your you did you get your right PhD? well going on you I, got... I, I did my doctoral internship at yale at the school of medicine at department of uh, psychiatry. I did my doctoral residency at Lawn Psychiatry at Harvard. And do I think there was benefits to it? I do think there or or benefits to. <laughs> so let's talk about the benefits. There were benefits, but maybe not the benefits that you might be thinking of. 
there were benefits in that when kids came in and a lot of uh, the counselors maybe or the <clears throat> interns or residents couldn't relate to them, I could talk to them and they got it and they understood that I got it without having to say anything. They felt me and they knew I felt them. Nothing is wasted if you learn from it, if you can grow from it. I'm a big believer in that. There are benefits when you see a kid and this kid is thugging out. And I volunteered, by the way, wherever I went uh, at Harvard or Yale to work with uh, inner city kids, almost always. Um, I co-facilitated the uh, substance abuse group at uh, adolescent group at Yale. I volunteered to do that. Um, when I was at Harvard, I was given the opportunity, if I chose, as sort of a, an extra sort of voluntary thing uh, to put a group together at, at the court, um, over there at the court clinic. And I worked with kids from there, from like Dorchester and, you know, from some of the, you know, less desirable neighborhoods, if you will, the poorer neighborhoods in Boston there. And so I worked with an intern, I was doing my residency and, um, we did the anger management group. We did the uh, another adolescent uh, substance abuse group there. Many of these kids, if not most of them, were uh, inner city kids and kids of color. And so, when you're you're working with kids, they know quickly if you're getting it or if you're not getting. It, if you're feeling them for real, if you're not feeling them for real, and you don't have to say, "I know what it's like." Nobody ever. <laughs> said, I know what it's like, knew what it's like. It's when you don't have to say it and they get you and they know you get them. So when you're dealing with a kid who wilds out, who, who has anger issues at school and you know they go up to the board or something and they wild out on their teacher and they say something uh, you know, off color, they even you know, throw hands or what have you. If they do something ridiculous, and you get that kid alone and you start talking to that kid about what's really going on. And because you know, you grew up with kids in that world where there's no benefit from looking stupid or looking dumb or not knowing the answer, but there's a lot of benefit, a lot of street credit in looking tough and being a thug. So when you talk to that kid, you didn't really know the answer or you're afraid you really were gonna look bad if you went up there and they recognize that you get them that they yeah that's exactly what was going on uh, i'm just trying to understand uh, just from a, a totally curious perspective is that if you grew up in the same environment um as a lot oh, of your here's the, well here's the thing um we can talk about that okay as i look back on some of the things that helped me um navigate through that and come out of it um <laughs> you know, to where I can make some sense of it, it was being intelligent, right? I mean, being smart, having a, a, a good IQ affords you certain things. Absolutely. Number one, it allows you to learn vicariously, right? So you can see other people um, make pretty bad mistakes and learn from their mistakes. That's a big one that having a higher IQ can certainly help you with. Also predicting outcomes. You see this person end up in this situation and you say, I don't wanna end up in that situation, so I'm not gonna do this part. I'm gonna you know, predict. That's not the outcome I'm looking for. Okay, well, uh -huh. let's, um, let's look at it from a different way. So from the ages of one 
um, well, let's assume from the age of zero to one, probably the way you were treated probably wasn't the best. So um, up from zero to, let's say, 21, what percentage of positive experiences did you have versus negative experiences in your lifetime? You know, it, it's very difficult to say. I mean, I was in the system until I aged, you know, out of it. The system, um, again, it, it, I ran away from pretty much every place I was sent to for various reasons. Uh, majority of it was most of the people just made it very clear that their sole purpose wasn't about you. It was about them collecting you know, whatever money they were getting, you being there, to the point where it was clearly a cottage industry, where like any other cottage industry, they were attempting to cut corners to, you know, save money and, and, and to maximize their profits, which was pretty clear. And in terms of trying to bond or connect, there would be some superficial bond when they attempt when the social worker dropped you off <laughs> or brought you in and you knew that that was expected and you kind of already had a good sense. You already read the writing on the wall when as soon as that social worker left, the whole tone changed and you could already predict what was uh, going to occur. And that was, you know, they were going to read you the rules. If you mess up, these are the consequences and things of that nature. Now, often, the majority of the time, actually, uh, except maybe once or twice that I can remember, there was um, biological kids involved. And the biological kids varied. Sometimes they could be very nice and try to kind of connect with you, especially if they were younger kids. But if they were older kids, they could be real difficult and make a real distinction. This is my room. Don't you go near my room. This is my this or my that. And don't you dare go near my this or my that. My way of dealing with that was to just recoil and not connect with them at all. Because they're already putting up the barriers to connection. And you kind of already knew where this was going. But it was always driven home when these rules were clearly only meant for you. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, but if we go back to simplify it, you know what I mean? And I know it's very hard to simplify someone's life. But they say for every bad experience, you need five great experiences to equal out bad and, and good, right? So if somebody's hurt you badly, there has to be five positive interactions for you to forgive that person or be able to um, mm -hmm. not have a lasting effect on you. Would you say that by the time you were 25, you'd had more five times as many positive experiences versus negative experiences in your life to that date? It's a, it's a very interesting question. I can tell you that I'm not certain, but here's the other piece of this. You're assuming, or there's this assumption, that these were all negative experiences, right? That's not actually the case when you have no expectations. They're more neutral experiences, actually. Because you don't expect these people, after a while, 
you know what the game is. But even you reflecting don't back, them to bond because... with you, and so you don't bond with them. So you're not hurt because there was nothing to be hurt from. You only get hurt by people who you connect with. If you're not feeling connected with these people, they can't really disappoint you. Um, and so what if there was an issue? It was attaching. Certainly attachment was a much bigger deal. I mean, because you're in a unique position right now. You are a doctor that studies all these behaviors. Mm -hmm. You have analyzed it. You have met hundreds and hundreds of people that displays different types of emotional Sure. Um, intelligence and so yeah. you're in this unique position which I haven't met anyone else that's in your position can mm -hmm. look back on your own childhood and mm -hmm. say here's the factors that made a big difference yes me. okay one I always kept a good sense of humor that was always the case um, bit sarcastic sometimes but always laughed at almost everything Sometimes you have to bow to the absurd. And oh my gosh, sometimes things would just be so ridiculous. Okay, so that's, that's, that's really interesting. Okay, so David, tell me something that, that was completely absurd. Like you were just like, I can't even believe this is surreal that this is happening to me. I remember being uh, at a mall. Um, and uh, at the time I was at a group home. I was told that the rules of the group home was such and such a thing. Now the group home was uh, run by this uh, elderly, well, elderly, an older um, married couple. And uh, apparently they had done it for a very long time. And there were a lot of kids who came in and out of the facility. I was supposed to uh, basically be given, um, you know, money to, to um, be able to buy clothes and, uh, what have you, because I had just gotten to this particular group home and I didn't have anything. So to give you an allotment, because I had just come from uh, living on the street, basically living in a, uh, you know, uh, an abandoned building um, where I had squatted for like, I don't know, four or five days. And then another one prior to that, uh, hanging out with kids. And um, so I got there and they were supposed to kind of give you money. So you can have enough clothes to, you know, go to school and what have you. And, you know, I remember getting, they gave me whatever they gave me. And I remember going uh, and they said, well, you know, you can, you know, go to the mall and kind of, uh, you know, get what you want. So <laughs> being a, being a kid, I bought um, something that I actually wanted to get. And I remember bringing it back, being kind of happy that I got this thing. Um, gotta understand, I, I rarely had anything new as a kid, very rarely. And um, these were a pair of uh, pants that I just, I could be proud of. I, was, I thought these were really cool pants. But in doing so, of course, I basically, it was a lot left over. And I don't know if I misunderstood or I just really wanted these pants. But when I remember getting back and them being very upset at me and having to go back and um, basically bring them back and exchange them, uh, you know, not even being able to buy anything at that particular store. But then 
going uh, to a store and like a Kmart type of thing and buying, uh, you know, clothes that were um, more suitable. They were not very attractive, but they did the job. And, uh, you know, you remember thinking, boy, this is so absolutely ridiculous because these are clothes that I would never get for myself. And the one time I'm told, get what you want, you know, that turns out to be too good to be true because I did that. And, you know, these are the consequences of doing that. So you just say, you know what? Eh, screw it. Um, you know, it's sort of the way it is and you don't, you just smile and say, okay, and deal with it. That's the bowing to the absurd. Um, and what did you, what, how did you feel on the inside at that point? Did you just feel like, why do I bother? You feel like you should have known better. That's kind of, the, it's a disappointment. So but you, embarrassed? you can't allow yourself to be so disappointed all the time. Because if you allow yourself to really feel that disappointment, you're going to be feeling a lot of disappointment. You got to just say it's not that important. But part of getting through crap that I got through was not becoming angry at individuals. I didn't hate people. I didn't. I wanted to believe in people in the worst way. I wanted to believe that all this crap that I was going through was the exception and not the rule. I wanted to believe that some of these bad TV shows like the Brady Bunch and, you know, and, uh, all those type of shows, even for that matter, Good Times and all these shows were more indicative of the reality. And what I was in was in some just ridiculous situation. And so I never got angry at individuals. Everybody I knew who grew up like me, who got pissed at the people, they didn't do great. I wanted to believe. I wanted to believe that people were better than this, that people were more than this. I wanted to believe it in the worst way because to not believe that would have meant all of this was complete BS. Some things are very difficult to deal with and, and certainly more difficult to find the humor in, right? But again, looking back and being able to say, and even at the time, being able to say, and, and Joe, and I know now as a professional, this is a, a, a distraction, uh, a way of diverting from dealing with the reality, right? So we distract ourselves with humor or what have you. But you know what? It can be a, a useful tool because when you stop and you look at the reality and it can become so overwhelming and insurmountable that if you don't laugh, what do you expect it to do then? Cry over it? And when do you stop crying? So you laugh. And you make jokes like, you know, I save a fortune on Mother's Day cards and Father's Day cards. You joke and say, hey, I never had a negative word to say to my parents. You goof around. You, you try to create the silver lining. Do you remember in um, inappropriate time where you used humor to deal with something that was really affecting you emotionally? Oh, yeah. And I would get into trouble as a kid all the time for laughing inappropriately, um, always as a kid. Um, I remember being yelled at many, many times. And I know I, much of it I know was nervous laughter, but it, it definitely was there. 
You're listening to the Stand Up Speak Up podcast with Carla Stevens Tolstoy. She's talking to forensic psychologist Dr. David Bernstein, who, thanks to his perseverance and intelligence, managed to turn his life around from a New York street kid in the foster system to a well respected professional who today helps kids to avoid falling through the very same cracks that he managed to escape as a child. Before we listen to the second half of the show, I want you to take a moment to think about what David has been through and check out some of the appropriate items at Stand Up Speak Up Apparel. Items such as the Spread Positivity Collection. You'll find teas with life-affirming, good-vibe thoughts such as Don't Be Toxic, Forgiveness Brings Power, Choose to Shine, Gratitude Gives Power, and yes, Good Vibes Only. That's the Spread Positivity Collection. You can visit online at StandUpSpeakUpApparel.com. And now, back to Carla's conversation with Dr. David Bernstein. As I'm listening to you, it's really fascinating me because, because you have done so much learning about all the things that you went through as a child. It's almost like you went into a discipline that would give you some type of background or rationale to your upbringing. And so when you're telling me about your life story, many times you talk in more of a general sense of your learnings, but not your actual experience. So it's almost like you're, you're so self-aware to an extreme that when I ask you something, you relate it back to the bigger picture. And it's interesting because it tells me you're probably not so comfortable with the specifics. Or as you said, you don't feel comfortable having people know that much about your individual experiences. Would you agree with that? Um, I'd say that there's truth in that. I believe that that so many of these experiences are more common than we believe and that the human experience of any human being that has gone through this Situations like this can either do one of two things. Adversity, I think, in general, can do one of two things to you. It can either defeat you and overwhelm you, or it can motivate you and encourage you. Now, and, how comfortable do you, do you feel saying, in the face of adversity, I didn't let it bring me down? Because it's, it's harder for you to, to put yourself in the first person, like I. I can say that it was never an option for me to move in any direction but forward. Okay. And so, I mean, I find that really interesting because I feel like you never, I, I don't believe that you had five times more positive experiences in That's your early years. True. And the, the fact that you went to school to study all of this and the impact, and it amazes me your level of curiosity. I mean, you're so curious. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about, and that of course could use additional support. 
My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. So fairly recently, I was asked if I would do a training at a hedge fund. And um, I was actually competing with another company who does similar type of training on insider threats and, you know, uh, that type of thing. And they asked, what makes, you know, you different from this other company? And I said to them, I said, well, these guys are great. And I believe that they are, they were really good. I said, they can give you a lot of really uh, good feedback and, and good training. And I said, but here's the thing. There's two things. One, they can only teach you what someone like me taught them, number one. I said, but number two, detecting threats for me is something I did my entire life. It wasn't an academic exercise. There were real stakes in being able to recognize threats in my world. So this is something I prepped for my entire life and have seriously developed instincts for. So yes, having the ability to give structure to some of these things that, you know, I've uh, dealt with and I've managed is absolutely important to me. And being able to see it from an academic perspective and understand that, hey, this is not a unique experience, but this is an experience that has been actually studied in this piece of it. I think one of the things we tend to do um, or fail to do really is not put some of these pieces together in something more cohesive um, and to look at the entire, you know, um, piece of, all the pieces of the puzzle, if you will. I, I think the unexamined life is not worth living, correct? I mean, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I've spent a great deal of my life trying to understand it and also trying to help other kids that have gone through even close to anything similar to understand that there are people who do get them and that they are not alone. And now what you're, what are you going to do with this? Okay. You dealt with this. Now, what are you going to let it do to you? You're going to let it beat you or you're going to say I'm bigger than you. Okay. Well, what have you ever been broken where you thought you couldn't rise back up? Oh, have, have you yeah. reached, have you, how many point times in your life and what were they specifically where you felt, Again, I can't, I, I'm, 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 I'm too broken. This, this yeah, one broke you, me. You know, I, I have my mantras. <laughs> I have a lot of them. <laughs> my, my little mantras that I pull out of my card deck in my head. 
And, um, and no matter how bad it gets, I just remind myself that there is no shame in falling down. The only shame is in staying down. And I say that to myself many, 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 many times. Are you times. trying to convince yourself of that? Or do you really believe that? I, I get a feeling from you that if, when, you, when you fall down, because I'm sure everyone does, that would really fuck you up. Like you'd just be like, oh my God, how did I let that happen? How was I not stronger? So here's the silver lining. And the silver lining is this, that no matter how badly I fall down, I've been lower and I got through that and I'll okay, get so, through whatever. So what's the, the lowest? What's the lowest you've been? Living in an abandoned building at seven years old that has maggots in the foyer um, and smells like urine where the homeless have gone in and turned uh, the foyer into a toilet. That type of a world where you have to deal with you know, some of these terrible things. Being in a foster home where you actually allow yourself to believe that this is going to be different. Really wanting to believe that in the worst possible way. Only to have that person, the, the mother in that foster home, make it very clear to you that she wasn't looking for a foster son. Uh, she was looking for something more than that. But if we, if we yeah. go back to that time, how old mm -hmm. were you? When you're a foster mother, uh, thirteen. And, so you were uh, just you were just coming into puberty. Um, I don't know what that means because I don't remember a time ever really <laughs> being a kid. So okay, so you feel uh, like I think the definition of those things. Okay, so change. anyways, so uh, that would be extremely <laughs> difficult, and I think that people think that only happens to foster girls. They don't realize that there's also. Um, an element no. that happens with, with foster boys. And I think yep. people don't, don't realize that. And that can really mess up your feelings of what love should be. You know, and, and there's another element to it when you're a boy also. And, and this is the um, other piece of it too. When you're, you know, first off, in terms of an incident where, you know, you sort of bow to the absurd. Um, you're, you're put into this foster home where the people are middle class and, and even upper middle class in this amazing town that's actually a wealthy town. And you meet them specifically because of something that you did that was a good thing that you did. And you really, really think that this person is going to be different because this is more representative of those bad sitcoms that you saw yeah, they fit that template certainly a lot more it's the mother and the father with the you know three kids and you you know again in this situation i remember very deliberately saying to myself really really deliberately thinking all right god you gave me a bad hand up until now and now everything's going to be great you're gonna you're fixing everything you know you're gonna put your this is going to be and I'm going to be a big brother and I'm going to all this other stuff and you know because you are who you are you want to believe that because you want to believe that all this other craziness is the exception and not the rule here's your opportunity to really see the reality this is what things are really like and you realize pretty quickly 
literally immediately way before this person does one little thing forward to you that you know what her intentions are and you think that if i keep ignoring it and playing it off and make believe i'm totally oblivious it, you know it kind of go away sort of a thing and then you know they make it clear that what their intentions are and i think it's even harder when when you're a guy and, and you're a boy and it's a female because i think females i know females are always the the sexual gatekeepers right um the ones to say no and boys are expected to be you know more sexual but that might be true when you're adults or when the power differential is more equal but when the person is a 35-year-old woman and you're a 13-year-old kid and this is somebody who you literally you did something you have never done you uttered words that have never come out of your mouth before this is how badly you wanted to believe and you know what those words were yeah what tell me mom i got something so simple as that and yet it's so unsimple like it's so complex being i mean words that you never uttered out of your mouth you wanted to believe it that badly and her kids you know we call them moms i said hey mom and it felt very weird even to to say those that word you know when when that's never been your way but that's how badly you wanted to believe and then of course you know intentions become clear and you say what you got a bow to the absurd but this is so freaking ridiculous and um so i left that foster home uh, about a year and a half later literally jumped out the second story window of there that was the other thing they lived in a single family home and i only thought rich people lived in single family homes because i knew no one who ever lived in a single family home so i thought wow it, it was just very um when you're this kid and this has been your reality your world you believe that you know this is your paradigm right your um template you realize that yeah that believing that was wrong but even then you got to say this was the exception not the rule this was just a bad situation this is not who people are like how many foster families were you in and how many were what would um, you say positive lot. scenarios uh, a lot there were very few positive scenarios some were more subtle negatively than others but again I, you know i remember going to one where the mother and the father was there and they were maybe in their 30s also and they had a young son maybe a year and a half maybe even two years younger than me who was actually a nice kid he was actually a sweet you know man and he was high and all that and i remember saying hi back reticent you know as as i always was but i remember the day i got there it was in a nice neighborhood i remember passing a park and thinking oh you know as i'm driving uh, you know there with the uh, the social worker and i remember thinking boy this is sort of cool and um maybe i'll get to play there or whatever and i remember when i got there you know the parents seemed pretty nice and um what have you and i remember they had again it was one of the first times i had ever seen filet mignon right and it was a filet mignon that they prepared it was the one with the uh, bacon wrapped around it and the toothpick kind of holding it all together and 
I had never seen anything like that. And I was hungry a lot. And so to see something like this was just, it was amazing. I just thought, wow, that was the coolest thing I had ever seen. And it, it kind of blew my mind that you could put meat, what meat wrapped around it. It was like, that was just so cool to me to see it for the first time. It stood out to me a lot. And, and again, though, at, at that evening when everybody sat down for dinner and the mother and father and the kid all had a steak and they gave me a hot dog, it was as if they that, had... That sounds like so fucked up. I mean, that I don't... How could someone See, in but any I way think that's that. normal? I did not. I didn't feel that way at all. Because you know what, what I felt like? What? Inside, I felt like they didn't owe me a thing. They were not my family. Your family owes you something. And I didn't have one. So they're not my family. They don't owe me anything. It would have been nice. It would have been nice for them to have given me a bite of the steak. Um, and I don't even know if I would have taken it. But they didn't owe me anything. So I didn't feel disappointed. I was actually happy to have something to eat. The day I was there, the lesson I learned was that there was nothing after that that could have told me I was part of their group, right? Uh, because that message to me was like, again, you might be in our house, but you are not of our house in any way. And I ran away. I think the next day or the day after or so, I remember you know, running away um, to Covenant House, a place I'd gone run away a lot of times too. But here was the life lesson I learned from that that nobody ever, ever will be at my home and I'm not going to offer them half of what I have ever. And to this day, I will never let anybody feel like they're not as important as I am or anyone else. You know, they are going to be as much of the home as I am in any situation mm -hmm. I've been in. And so there's life lessons in these two. And, and important templates, and even out of the negative can come these important templates. And yeah, I mean, I think when you hear it, and maybe if I was to think of it in that way, what were these people thinking? But you want to know something? Wasn't important. What was important is... But, but it was important. It was a moment of truth for you. It was important. It has stuck with you. It was a life lesson in your eyes. Like, I... I I'm not going to expect lesson. anything from anyone. Um, so uh, it all was that important. Did reinforce that lesson. <laughs> that wasn't a lesson I learned at that moment. That was a lesson they reinforced to me. Okay. Yeah. You're, you're, I mean, life lesson was you don't treat people like that. That was the life lesson. The life lesson was you treat people the way you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. Period. What were the moments? of truth that happened during your upbringing that helped define you or helped you to become like who you are for the good and the bad. I mean, I'm well, sure you're not perfect, right? Oh my God, no. <laughs> and, and my friends remind me all the time. You know, I was fortunate in, in the sense that, you know, those, sometimes these moments occur, these sort of hallmark moments, these watershed moments and people aren't aware of them. And, and I can say that a part of me was, uh, you know, very much aware of some of these sort of hallmark moments. 
one moment that made a very big impact on me. Again, I was at a group home in Staten Island called Geller House. Geller House was an interesting group home. It had boys and girls and it had it was a locked kind of unit. It was an old house that apparently went through various iterations. At one point, I think it was donated to uh, the city. It was a place for unwed mothers, or teen mothers, and it went through its different phases. And when I was there, it was a group home. They had boys on the lower floor and the girls on the top floor because they didn't want the um, boys to drop down to the girls floor kind of a thing. And boys being who, you know, we are. Anyway, this group home, again, it locked. It had the double lock where you were locked in and they locked, you, you know, as they closed the facility. It was right across the street from this private school. And this private school, when they let out, they would bring us in. So if we were outside, they would make us come inside as to sort of not contaminate these good kids with uh, us. And I remember going and sitting in the middle of the uh, home and there was a big window with a radiator right next to it. And I would sit and look out that window as these kids walked by with their nice jackets on with their crests. And this one young lady would go by and I remember smiling and then she smiled at me. And um, I was about 12, I would say. And eventually we started sort of kind of yelling back and forth at each other. Hi, how are you? That kind of thing. And asked her name and she asked mine. And this went on for about a week. After about a week, this young boy, one of her classmates comes by and he looks up, he stops and he says, what are you talking to him for? Those are street kids. And I remember them walking off, you know, together and, you know, she yelled bye and all that. And I, I remember sinking down with my back up against the radiator and I cried. I literally bawled because all I could think of was what did I do so bad? What did I do to make me this street kid? What, why am I not as good as these kids? And after I got sad, I got ticked, really ticked off. And I said, you know what? Screw this. And I started reading every book on diction, every book on manners that I could get my hands on, because I never wanted anyone to say that kid grew up in foster care in New York City. He's just a street kid. And, and if they were going to close a door, let it be because it was something I did, not because something they thought I was or who they thought I was. And, you know, just some street kid. So I wasn't going to let that happen. That was a very important moment for me. And I literally started working so hard to lose this very thick accent that I had, to not say axe anymore instead of ask. I started working very hard to be aware so do, of do you think if, how I was coming do, across to people. Do you think if I, I met you now, today, and I didn't know anything about your background, do you feel that now... It wouldn't surprise you if I thought you grew up in a wealthy family, going to a private school and being a jet setter. Absolutely. And in fact, I think people assume those things all the time. And I work very hard and have worked very hard to have as neutral an accent as possible. 
um, I worked very hard to blend and to not, again, not have the Ebonic that I grew up with come out. What so, was your moment of truth when you said, yes, I want to go on to further my education? So I grew up in a world where if you raised your hand too much, you might not get it back. You know what I mean? So if the teacher asked a question or a question was posted to the class and I was always wanting to raise my hand, always. And I think part of that was because you don't have the consistency of parents and what have you, that you learn to like the teachers and the teachers you like, you want it to, you learned from. And those who you didn't like, you didn't care about. And because you don't have parents who are encouraging you saying you have to do well, you're, you're self-encouraging, you're self-motivated. Um, and so for me, I was a, just a, a naturally bright kid. If I read something, I got it. And I didn't have to read it 800 times and highlight everything. If I read it, I got it. And I got the concept of it. So, you know, let's, let's talk about ODD for a second. This uh, over-representation of oppositional defiant disorder, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so, you know, I, I've mentioned this before that, you know, I, I often use this analogy of walking a tightrope through childhood, right? You got to go from point A to point B childhood through to adulthood. And when you're walking that tightrope and you know there's a net underneath you and you know that, you don't think that, you don't, you know, assume that, you know that. It's as real to you as the air you breathe, as the food you eat. It's real. It's tangible. And you know it. It's a given to you. You can do some awesome things up on that tightrope. You can take risks. You can do backflips. You can play up on that tightrope because you know if you fall, there's a soft place for you to land. There's a net underneath you that somebody or several people have your back and you're not going to get hurt and failure isn't going to be fatal and you're going to be okay no matter what. So you can learn to take awesome risks up on that tightrope. And those risks will become part of your template of who you are and, and end up being some risks you can take and the benefit of taking risks in adulthood. But let's say you're a kid, you grow up and there's no net underneath you. Well, you still end up getting from point A to point B. You put one foot in front of the other foot and very cautiously move forward. Now, you might not have a lot of fun up there on that tightrope because you know that if you fall, you might only fall once and there's nobody to have your back. So you better walk a very cautious tightrope. Now, some people think that's the worst thing you can do to a kid, but it isn't. Worst thing you can do to a kid is to put a net underneath them and pull it away and put a net underneath them and pull it away. Because that kid, that kid learns that just when I am counting on that net to be there, just when I do something where I actually take a risk, where I actually might have some fun up on this tightrope and I hope that net is there for me. And just when I need it most, it might not be. So you know what? I'm never going to trust anybody to ever put a net under me. It's not going to be there just as I need it most. That's the worst thing you can do to a kid by far. And this is what we see when 
kids go to multiple foster homes and multiple placements. It puts that net under them and they're told this is this great, wonderful place and they got your back here, but they find out quickly it isn't that way. And then they go to the next one. And with every new foster home, the lesson is just when I need that net to be there, it's not going to be there. So you know what? I'm not counting on any of you ever. I can do bad on my own. How would you relate that back to your experience? You wouldn't unpack because you knew that eventually you're going to move on to someplace else. So what's the point of connecting? Because if you do, they're only going to, you're not going to be there next week anyway, or maybe next month or maybe two months after. I don't know how the government or anyone could solve all the foster care issues. I mean... A lot of it stems back to like having the right foster parents. There are some wonderful foster parents out there. I've seen them. There are some foster parents who truly have the children's best interests at heart. And then there are some who go into it having the children's best interests at heart and then come across children who have been very scarred. Those kids are not going to be warm and fuzzy to them immediately. One of the biggest issues that I see with a lot of foster parents is they're looking for these children to give them a sense of, to be thankful to them, to say, oh, you guys are awesome. They want gratitude. They want to see these kids say, oh, wow, thank you. You saved my life. And you know, the first thing I say to those particular foster parents Do your own kids give you gratitude like that? Do your biological kids give you thanks like that? They don't. And how can you expect it from these other kids? What percentage of foster parents, um, through all the ones that you experienced personally, what percentage did you say um, probably started off with good intentions, but then it just became, the whole thing just became overwhelming for them versus ones that really always had good intentions and continued and ones that did it for the paycheck? I would say for the latter, none um, in my experience. It was always at best equal but separate. You know, when you go into a foster home and there's literally locks on the refrigerator, you know, and on the pantries, but their biological kids can eat whatever they choose to. When they get new clothes and you get literally clothes that either don't fit you or in bad condition and what have you. And it's a clear message. Okay, well, let me just clarify, just because my the last one I said was they do it for the money. And you said, um, in your experience, the latter one is the one you don't you didn't experience very much. When you said, um, I'm sorry, I misunderstood. I thought what you said was the ones that continue to be welcoming and make you part of their home. Yes. Kind of what percentage would that be? Um, it would be a very low. In fact, I think in the whole time I was in the system, I don't know if I ever saw it, to be honest. Um, and maybe it's just the way memory works, right? We tend mm-hmm. to remember the negatives over the positives. But, you know, again, frequently the message is you're welcome here and everything's wonderful and as soon as the social worker leaves there's a very acute and obvious change in their affect in their the way they talk to you is becomes more hostile um certainly 
not the warm, fuzzy, welcoming thing they just did five minutes earlier with the social worker there. Do you think that the social workers um, are savvy to this and they just choose to ignore it because they just don't know another solution? I think some of the social workers are ignorant to what's going on. I think some of them, there's a clear bias towards the foster parent, the adult. So when a child says to that, foster, to that social worker, something is occurring, the social workers, they, they might go back to the adult and say, hey, you know, the child said something was going on and I just want to run it by you kind of a thing. And of course, the person will deny it. And now that child will never trust that. And, and the worst part is, they will never trust that social worker again, but it's very possible they will never trust any adult again. It took a lot for them to come forward and say something to an adult. And now that adult in, in essence betrayed them. For me, it was a social worker from Catholic Charities named Barbara Finley. And it's so interesting because it's the only social worker's name that I remember from my childhood. Um, who I told something very important and, you know, she definitely uh, did not handle it well. And it was the last time that I ever took that type of risk again. I do not feel optimistic that things are going to improve and get that much better. Like, that's the sad part is I don't know how anybody can say to a current kid in foster care, don't worry, you know, it's all going to be okay. The problem is that the foster care system itself has become a system based in desperation. They need places for these kids so badly, just beds for these kids so badly that there's less and less discrimination in terms of where these children end up going. I mean, there's states where kids will end up in mental health facilities, not because they have issues, but because there's beds for them available. So the state can say that we found a bed. And as long as it's a system based in desperation, I think we're going to have these issues. These children have no voice and they've become disposable. When we talk about this whole concept, 15 years ago, we started labeling this one concept. We call it the foster care to prostitution pipeline. This is a real thing. And it shows this huge overrepresentation of child sex workers who are part of the foster care system. Literally, depending on the state, 60 to 80% of child sex workers, some as young as 10. And these were the kids I grew up with. And even though we didn't have the name yet, foster care to prostitution pipeline, it didn't mean that it wasn't happening. I can give you scores of examples of kids out there who have been part of this foster care to prostitution pipeline. One of the things that makes it particularly egregious to me personally, is the fact that many of these kids are not even reported missing by their foster parents. And any kid who's been in foster care will tell you why in a second. And that is because if they report them missing, what happens? The foster homes stop getting paid for them. So if your kid is missing for 10 minutes, I don't know anybody who if their kid is missing for five minutes, they don't have a SWAT team out looking for them. Yet these kids... They can be gone for a month and not reported. How horrible is that? So the message is you are not 
good enough. You're less than human. And that's the sad part, that they have no voice, no one to look out for them, no net, and that they're disposable. Is it really impossible to find placements, right? I know in Canada, it's the same thing. It's, it's very, and especially teenagers, they almost have no luck. It's a system based in desperation. Yeah. And as long as it's a system based in desperation, this is going to be par for the course. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, it's so, it's so um, disheartening because there's not even a solution. We need oversight. We need serious oversight. You know, Gandhi talked about society being judged by how it treats its weakest members, its weakest citizens. I would say these are children who are about as weak as you can get. They have no voice. In terms of any power or anything like that, they have no voice whatsoever. In terms of being weak as individuals, they're some of the toughest kids you'll ever meet, tough as nails. The sad part is they don't find themselves in a situation where they can trust that they don't have to be that tough anymore. How many foster kids do you think end up fostering kids themselves? Very few. Um, very few. I think part of it is because of the, this animus towards the system itself. And the amount of kids who get out and make it or become successful enough to be able to you know, foster other children. Uh, you know, it's a very difficult thing when you kind of make it through the system. I can tell you from personal experience, it's a very strange thing to be in a position where you're not that person anymore. You're not that foster kid. You're not Bedford Stuyvesant, East New York. That's not who you are anymore. But you're not Harvard and Yale either. There's something in the middle. You never maybe feel that you're 100% at ease in either of those situations anymore. You're sort of straddling this fence. So on that very rare, rare occasion, you meet someone who made it out successfully. It's an amazing thing. But again, it happens just way, way too rarely, unfortunately. That's Dr. David Bernstein, who grew up as a foster kid in New York City and managed to turn his life around by becoming a well-respected forensic psychologist who fights for the very kids that he was once a part of. He shared his journey with Carla Stevens Tolstoy. And that's it for this edition of the Stand Up, Speak Up podcast. I'm your guest host, Peter Anthony Holder. Thanks for joining us. The Stand Up, Speak Up podcast is made in Canada. Copyright 2018. Find us online at standupspeakupapparel.com. If you have a moment, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Stand Up, Speak Up. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast. But we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.